0: Now last week we talked to you about going through the, the last verses in the book of Jude and we talked about the need to contend for the faith, to, to wrestle for our faith and we looked at verses uh, 20 and 21 as we saw there that Jude gave us some lessons on how to contend for the faith. And In effect what he says is that contending for the faith or fighting for your faith is this wonderful gift that God's given to us. We're, we're saved by faith, this is a gift from God as we know as Susie pointed out today from Ephesians, we're saved by faith And this is a gift from God. It's not of our own. And this once-in-time gift is then we experience that living it out day by day. Do you remember we talked a little bit about this? We're talking about that once-in-time gift. But every day we need to contend for our faith. We need to build our faith. God has invited us in. He, He didn't just save us and leave us in a static position. He invites us in to grow. And he walks alongside us. And then he outlines for us how we can build our faith. And if you really, to sum it up, I find this quite amazing Basically, as we actively love others as God has loved us, so our faith is built up. Um, As we read the word of God and God speaks to us through his spirit, our faith is built. As we pray to the Lord and we understand the the beautiful invitation of prayer to, to be able to come before our God who has given so much so that we have access to him. He's really laid this beautiful foundation and this beautiful pathway through the death his son through the burial of his son and through his resurrection so that we can come freely into the presence of God extraordinary amount of work that started even back in the garden of Eden amazing don't you think and he knew that all along even before he made humanity he realized that we would fall and that we would be separated from him he had a plan to send his son to die in our place so that we could be made right with God again And then he doesn't hold us off with one hand and sort of ignore us as though we're sort of not enough. Much more than that, God says, you're acceptable to me. And I've sealed you with my Holy Spirit. And you have this guarantee that I'm coming back for you again. And then he says, come into my presence in prayer. Come and talk to me. Come and commune with me. Come and read the scriptures back to me. Come and claim my promises. Let's walk and talk together. This is a beautiful picture of what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we continue to contend for the faith by loving others as God has loved us and growing together. And if you look at our church, just from a little bit of a distance of how we're structured, we try to bring the word of God to you all the time so that you're growing and meeting God through the Holy Spirit in his word and being empowered. We're not a church that has community groups. We want to be a church of community groups. So we've, under Pastor Vincent, we've been growing our community groups and they've, they've flourished, but we've, we've still got a long way to go. And we, we know that and we're working hard because it's wonderful when we come together in community and we support one another as we share the Word of God. That's how we continue to grow in our faith. Wonderful, wonderful privilege to be invited by God. Today, we want to take a time just to jump back. Next week... Uh, Pastor Graham, I think it's Pastor Graham, one of us will be preaching to you through verses 22 and 23. Okay? And then the following week, uh, Phil Oster will be speaking either here in the auditorium, but Phil's going to join us as well as we go through the last few verses. But today, in the light of contending for our faith, we've been called by God to, to really step forward, not to remain complacent, not just to stand in one place, but to actually actively engage with him. Now I want to talk to you briefly about the dangers that we have that face us every day in our church, every day in our marriages, every day in our workplace, every day in our universities. And the the problem that we face is that our hearts are prone to worship anything but the living God. Our hearts are prone towards pride and towards greed. Our hearts are prone towards thinking of ourselves more than we think of others. Our hearts are prone to having a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought. And so we're predisposed constantly to worship anything other than God. And we get this fantastic warning in the life of three men that we see in just one verse, in verse 11. Now this verse is incredibly powerful, and Jeremy's right about the book of Jude. It is an awesome book packed full of stuff. And this verses speak about the universal church, the worldwide church, and those that claim to belong to the living God, but they are just empty vessels, empty clouds. They boast and build themselves up and we see them on television and they proclaim that they can do wonders and great things and they lie to us because they are clouds with no rain and we need to be aware of those people. But then if we bring it down to a local level, what can we learn personally from these foolish men. How can we reflect on our own hearts and think, man, you know what? I am just like one step away from doing that myself and I do actually do it but I have this wonderful gift of being able to come back and repent of my sins. We are idol factories. We tend to worship anything we can. But listen to this. God won't refuse a heart that is surrendered to him. God will not refuse a heart that's surrendered to him. Psalm 51 and verse 17, the sacrifice God wants is a broken spirit. God, you will not reject a heart that is broken and sorry for sin. Now that's a a translation of Psalm 51 and verse 7. God does not despise a broken and contrite heart. God knows that we need to come back to him. God knows that we will oftentimes wander away. And so God's made it possible for us to come back willingly at any time. He's willing to forgive us. Isn't that wonderful news? The God who made us is willing to forgive us and to continue to forgive us as we strive for our faith. God has called us to follow after his way, to not to reject it or to do our own thing. Many think that if we do our own thing, it doesn't matter to God. It'll be okay. I just come along on Sunday and I'll nod when I need to nod and if the pastor says amen, I'll say amen with him and so on and so on, and I'll I'll make sure I give some money and I take communion and everything will be honky-dory and then on Monday I can go back into the world and live my life for myself with no regard to the fact that God is with you in that and he will judge us for our sin. He will bring conviction. Sometimes he chastises us for our sin in the hope that we'll turn around and come back to him again. These men that we'll look at in a moment had no regard for that. God has called us to follow him. To never forget that He will keep us accountable. God has called us to follow after His way, not to reject it. This is what we learn from 1 Peter 1 and verse 16. This is what God wants you to be. Since it is written, you shall and come along with me. You shall be holy, for I am holy. God is set apart. And God is the epitome of holiness. God. Is not holiness to God is not something that he attaches to himself it's actually God is holy he is the definition of holiness and by virtue of giving himself to us and filling us with his spirit he has made us holy in the sight of God if you're a child of God and you've received him as your Lord and Savior and you've been filled with the Spirit of God, when God looks at you, this may sound strange, but he looks at you through the blood of Christ. And what I mean by that is that Jesus has paid for your sin. So God sees you as one without sin. God sees you as set apart for him something very, very beautiful and very, very precious. Isn't it wonderful? This is how God sees us. I am standing in a room full of people who have been set apart for God. You are acceptable and precious in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that gorgeous to know that God has done this for us? And so he expects us to conduct it ourselves. When our kids used to get out of the car to school, I would say to them, now remember, this is probably wrong, so don't do this to your kids, okay? Not a good example. But I'd say, remember you're a little fair and behave accordingly. <laughs> it backfired occasionally. But I wanted them to remember who they are and I wanted them to live that out. God is saying, be holy for I am holy. In other words, remember who you are. You are accepted to God, acceptable to God and precious in his sight. Luke says this to us as we prepare ourselves to think about how our hearts are working today. And he he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your... And with all of your... And with all of your... And with all of your mind. And then he says, And your neighbour as yourself. I think we get the first parts of it. But then who is our neighbour Well, you greeted your neighbor. Jeremy got you up to say hello. Those people are your neighbors. The people who are actually literally your neighbors who live in the same street with you. A neighbor is anyone who you've come across who is in need that you can express the love of God to. Everybody is our neighbor, especially those who are in great, great need. And God wants us to love him with all of our strength. With everything we have, he wants us to serve him. John 13 and verse 35 sharpens the focus. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Incredible, isn't it? The scriptures tell us that for a wife who is living with an unbelieving husband, that she can actually win him to salvation without a word. And I could preach on that all day, but that would be a bit sexist. But what it's saying is that her beautiful conduct in the home as she understands that God loves her and she loves her husband, he's so humbled by her conduct that it softens his heart and opens him up to believing upon the living God. Isn't that amazing? And yet we have that same privilege every day as we live amongst one another and we love one another. What happens is that the unbelieving world looks in and thinks, how do they do that? And How can I have that love? Who, who would dare love me the way that they love one another? You know that that may seem like a simple question, but the world doesn't have an answer to that question. There are people who are suffering in our community, who are locked away, struggling with mental illness, crying out in their hearts, who will love me like that? Who will love me as I am? Do you know the only person that has an answer to that is God... And you know, his answer to that is you and I. As we are loved by him, so we love others the way that God has loved us. There is no tablet for that. There is no medication for that. There is no therapy for that. Simply that we love as God has loved us. Isn't that amazing? But we need to be careful because we live in a world where we are broken and we do the wrong thing and we live in a world where Satan is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking to tempt us and seeking to destroy us and so I want to reflect on Cain's life, I want to reflect on Balaam for a moment and I want to reflect on Korah for a moment, three stories from the Old Testament that may help us to sort of peel back the layers of our heart and be honest about who we are and how we need to conduct ourselves. And, to, encourage us and to, to sharpen the focus on that contending for the faith is not static. It's not something we do in a couch. We have to fight for the faith as we love one another. So let's start with Cain. Most of you would have heard of Cain. And his lifestyle is defined this way. Cain lived a, a life of rejection. He lived in a way where he rejected God. Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. So you've got Abel and Cain. Adam and Eve have been cast out of the garden they have sinned against God and that sin has passed on to all of humanity to you and I here in this auditorium but certainly to their children as well and so Cain and Abel were raised in a world that was broken and where they had to toil and fight for everything they had whereas their parents enjoyed the garden and the presence of God Abel was a man who had livestock, and as you read in Genesis chapter 4, you'll see that clearly God communicated to Eve and Adam how now, in a broken world, they should approach God. That was first communicated to Adam and Eve when God came and clothed them. Do you remember what God clothed them in? You remember the fig leaf? You've seen the fig leaf in the children's books, which is a load of nonsense? Because he actually clothed them in animal skin doesn't that sounds like that's really sensible great in the cold weather good if you fall off your motorbike that sort of stuff it was actually horrendous because adam knew instantly that because of his sin death had entered the world And he knew well enough too because he's a lot smarter than we probably think. We think of him as a Neanderthal but he was the perfect man. He knew immediately that death had come into the world and the only payment for sin was that the death of the lamb, that the only payment for sin could be made was the shedding of blood. And that would have wrenched his heart. So Abel, he was a keeper of livestock and he understood as God had revealed to him through his parents and probably with direct revelation, that when he came time to make an offering for his sin and to ask God for forgiveness, he was to bring the best of his flock and he was to slaughter that and offer that as a sacrifice before the living God. He, he, he got that clearly. And then he has a brother Cain who is a farmer who looks after crops and he would have given the same message to Cain too. He would have told Cain, this is the way you come and offer a sacrifice for your sin. But Cain, you see, lived a life of rejection. And he basically had in his heart, you can stick that up your jumper, I'm just going to bring the best of my crops because I'm as good as Abel, I'm as good as anyone else and I'm going to bring you the best of my crop and I'm going to offer that to you and that will be an offering for my sin. And God rejected his offering. And that made Cain furious. Rather than bringing Cain to humility, rather than bringing Cain to his knees, rather than bringing Cain to a place of of repentance and saying to God, I'll do it your way, I want to please you with every part of my life, he raised his fist to God and he struck his brother dead. The first recorded murder in our world. And today we watch it for entertainment. So devastating is the penalty and the effect of sin on humanity. That rather than Cain humbling himself, it just made his pride build up and his pride led to death. Rather than it bringing a brokenness, it raised up anger in his life. And that anger opened him up to further temptation. And jealousy over his brother ruined his life and ruined his brother's life. It brought anger and murder. Because Cain had moved to a place where he believed that there was no judgment. He could just offer whatever he wanted and there'd be no judgment. There was no judge. He was never going to be judged by anybody because he was just as good as the next bloke. There was no reward, no destruction of the wicked. He was living in complete denial of what God had revealed to him. And God had revealed it. Cain was not in the dark. Cain was not uninformed, Cain knew exactly what he must do, but he hardened his heart and he went his own way. Do I need to apply that to our lives today? Or can you do that yourself? How many times have we been tempted by sin and God in his tenderness has spoken to us and called us to live a holy life and we have hardened our hearts, we've clenched our fist, and we've gone our own way. And the temptation to do that all the time, that God, you will not judge me. I can live my life my own way. I can live life on my own terms. I can do whatever I like. And in the end, you'll come and receive me because you're a loving God and you'll forgive me of my sins. That type of theology will lead to brokenness and destruction. And remember when Cain killed Abel, Adam and Eve suffered terribly. Abel died, Cain uh, suffered as well, it leads to absolute destruction. Let us strive together to build our faith and let us beware of the temptation that crouches at our door to lead us away from God, to lead us away from humbling ourselves before him, to lead us away into sin that we believe will satisfy us but will actually bring destruction in our lives. Amen. Next story that we see, I love the way he's packed this in. Remembering that the Jewish people this was written to, they they knew the story of Cain back to front. They knew Balaam too. Do you know the story of Balaam? A prophet of the nation of Israel? A prophet that was meant to speak the word of God? The prophet that was meant to bring the word of God, both judgment and blessing, to the nation of Israel. A man who supposedly was a servant of the Most High God was set apart for him for these reasons. Well, Balaam was a prophet, but Balaam was out for himself and no one else. Balaam was a prophet for hire. You could pay Balaam money and he would prophesy whatever you told him to prophesy if it worked for him. So Balaam is on his way to... A king has invited him to come and to prophesy or to put a curse over the nation of Israel, and if he pronounces a curse over the nation of Israel, because this foreign king believed that that would enable him to defeat Israel, that he would get a lot of money if he was willing to do that. So he's on his donkey, and we all know how dumb donkeys are. Well, actually they're not, because he's on his donkey, and the donkey, they're going along the road, and standing in the road was an angel with a sword. And donkey could see it, but Balaam couldn't. And so the donkey did a really smart thing. The donkey said, Let's get off the road. So the donkey goes off the road. So Balaam's on top of this donkey, and he's fighting with his donkey to get it, and he's actually kicking and beating his donkey. And finally he gets the donkey back onto the road, but they get into a narrow pass where he could go neither left nor right. And the angel appeared in front of the donkey again and with a sword, and Balaam couldn't see the angel, and so the donkey was trying to move to one side and the other, and in the process it crushed Balaam's foot. And Balaam's beating his donkey again. And then the Bible says, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and he didn't say, E-oh. he said, why are you beating me? Now, like anybody with half a brain would have got off the donkey at that point and run as far as they could. Not Balaam. He started talking to the donkey <laughs> like it was an everyday occurrence. And the donkey uh, pronounced the, not pronounced the judgment, but spoke to Balaam. And eventually... The Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel also. And that time he got off the donkey. He got off the donkey quick smart and laid on his face in the dirt and repented. And the Lord said to him, you will not pronounce a curse on the nation of Israel. You will only say the words that I give you to say. So he went to the foreign king and he said, I can't pronounce a curse as you want me to. I can only say what the Lord wants me to say. And you would have thought that that had been the end of it. But Balaam was so greedy for his own way so full of lust, so full of greed, that what he did was, he told the foreign king how he could destroy the nation of Israel. He said, intermarry with them. Eat with them. Marry them. Drink wine with them. And eventually, you will overcome them because they will fall in love with your people and they will end up worshipping your gods. And so the nation of Israel suffered terribly because of the advice that Balaam... And Balaam did well out of that. He got uber bucks. He moved into a nice little condo that overlooked the water. And he was kicking back. And in his mind, there was no judgment to come. He'd won the day. He got his dollars. He was feeling comfortable. His life was full of wealth and ease and immorality. And then when we read on in God's word and we get down further... In Numbers 31 and verse 7, we read that Balaam was eventually killed by the Lord's army. As the Lord's army came upon those foreign kings, Balaam got in the way and the Lord dispatched Balaam. God's judgment always comes. And God judges his household first. Isn't that frightening? He knows every word we speak. He knows every deed that we have done. We ought to be really careful, shouldn't we, as we contend for the faith, because we, we love talking about that. But we've got to recognize we're in a broken world and we're broken people, and we need to really guard our hearts so that we don't fall into the same sort of things that Balaam fell into, where we're really becoming using our Christianity as a way to serve ourselves. And the church is doing that, friends. The church is rife with immorality, and we excuse ourselves. And we, we tell ourselves that we have no regrets. And we tell ourselves it's our right to have these things because it makes us feel happy. And what we're actually doing is we're denying the God who made us. We're actually saying, you can't satisfy me. I won't follow you. I don't believe that you would judge me because I have no regrets. We drink ourselves to a stupor. We take drugs to ease our pain. We backstab and we fight and we lie and we deceive And I'm talking about the church. Are we not just like Balaam? Prophets for hire? What about you men and women that own your own businesses? Have you not understood the Lord is with you in that? I've run run my own business, so I'm not just having a crack at you. But we've got to be careful we don't use our businesses as just an opportunity to serve ourselves. We speak about Christ, but we work like a devil. And we'll take a backhander anytime we can get it. We need to be careful as we strive for the faith and not disconnect ourselves from the reality that the Lord is returning and he will judge his church. It says this in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. I want to speak just briefly to you husbands, you fathers in the church today, who are the gatekeeper of your homes. You are the gatekeeper of your children's hearts. And are you taking that responsibility seriously? Are you being careful what's coming into your home via the front door, via the TV, and via the internet? that we might guard ourselves and that we might actually live out what we, what we want to believe, what we truly believe, that God is good and he's worthy of all of our attention. So we need to stop and we need to repent, don't we? Because frankly, we haven't taken any notice of that. It's just met our need to wink at it and let it go and what we're actually saying is that God will not judge. We are wrong. God will judge. And he will start with us first. Cora is a man who worked in the nation of Israel, and this is during the time of Moses. And uh, L.M. MacDonald says, Error and apostasy are never static. They lead people in a confused, rushed, or disorderly manner to the very edge and then over into destruction. Korah was a man who thought too highly of himself and he was serving effectively in the third rank of the priesthood as they served the Lord during that time while they are in the wilderness. And Moses and Aaron were clearly anointed by God to, to lead them. And Aaron and uh, Moses were able to go into the Holy of Holies at the right time and offer a sacrifice to the nation of Israel. And they were supported by the Levite priests. And then under them, Korah worked uh, with men and women to uh, serve the Lord and to serve the nation. But Korah, he, he believed that he was just as important as everybody else. See, the Bible tells us that we're a kingdom of priests. That we all have the same measure of the Holy Spirit. That we are all the children of God. And that's true, and we are all equal before the Lord. But then the Lord clearly in the New Testament has set up a leadership structure so the church can run in an orderly manner. Would you not agree? He spends a lot of time. Similarly, in the Old Testament, there was a very clear leadership structure so that God could be glorified and the nation could function well. But Korah had it in his heart that he was as good as Aaron and Moses and he lusted after the power and the authority that they had and he began to criticize them and he got others to join him in the criticism of Moses and Aaron, 250 other men and families on top of that who came before Moses and Aaron and basically said, you've done a rubbish job. You've brought us out of the land of Egypt where we had food and we had shelter. Now we're in the wilderness. You promised us milk and honey. Where's the milk and honey? We haven't got it yet. You're a rubbish leader. I could do a better job. And Moses was angry. And he invoked the Lord and called on the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Korah and he spoke to Moses and Aaron and he said to Moses and Aaron, when, the Lord, when Moses spoke to him and told him what was going on, he said, I want you to separate yourself from these people. Not just Korah and his 249 dopes that he was with, but he said, separate yourself from the whole of the nation and I will wipe them out. Do you know what Moses did? He fell down before the Lord and begged the Lord not to destroy them. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful man. But the Lord said, I want you therefore then to separate yourself from Korah and the 250 men. Let them come before me with their incense and let them make an offering before me and we will judge who is right and who is wrong. So Korah came before the Lord. He instructed Moses and all the people to separate themselves. So Korah and all his men are standing separately there. And the moment that Moses had spoken that the Lord will this day choose between us, and they finished speaking, the ground opened up under Korah and his 250 colleagues, or his 249 colleagues, and they fell to hell, into flames and smoke and darkness. And then the, the land closed up again. I reckon nobody walked on that piece of land for months. Everybody walked, walked around it, just in case it opened up again. Okay. The Lord had made it very clear that we need to be faithful and humble ourselves before him, that we've got to be very, very careful that we don't curse the lord and what i mean by that is that god has placed over us those whom he has put his hand on to lead us and when we deceitfully seek to undermine them we are actually coming against the lord and we are being deceitful against the lord our battle is not with them our battle becomes with the lord and i've got to tell you that's not a battle you're going to win isn't it and think about this how this works in our hearts how many times have we cursed Leaders in our community. How many times have we we slung off against our politicians? That's just like a national sport in Australia. You're not an Aussie if you don't do that. But frankly, we ought to fear the Lord and recognise the Lord has put these authorities in place and our job is not to be disrespectful to them. It's appropriate to come and ask a question. And God's given us that in the Scriptures. Has he not said that to us in Matthew chapter 18? If you have a problem with a brother, go and speak to him. If you have an issue go and sit down with that brother and if you feel that you've been mistreated or he hasn't heard you because he's in authority over you bring another person with you someone of authority someone whom you can trust and bring that issue to him and if you feel then you haven't been heard bring it to the elders as a collective and then if that's not good enough the elders will then perhaps bring that before the church but God's given us a clear process of how we can love each other and how we can deal with our disputes and how we can save ourselves from envy and backstabbing and slander Do you understand? Because it's devastating, absolutely devastating to our community. Let me finish by taking you back uh, to that beautiful passage that we finished on last week. I want to tell you that our hearts are deceitful, and that's in Jeremiah 17. I want to tell you that from Psalm 139, that the Lord needs to search us and see if there's any grievous way in us. Amen? Amen. And we ought to do that on a regular basis. Lord, How am I feeling the right way about this? Am I, am I dealing with this the right way? Search me and try me. See if there's any wicked way within me. But then we come back to verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved. But you, beloved. That's a powerful, powerful word. And I wish I had an hour to talk to you about it. These folks lived in a culture where the strongest one. Uh, where men who slaughtered thousands were honoured and lifted up. Where the, the, the community was in, uh, stratified, that everybody had their place on the ladder. And then God comes into the picture through the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel says, But you, beloved, I love you. I've died for you. I'm not going to kill you. I've actually died for you. And I call you now my beloved. It's uh, very, very beautiful and very, very precious. And he says, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is our goal. We need to learn from Cain. We need to learn from Korah. We need to learn from these pictures in the Old Testament so that we might guard our hearts so that we're actually building our faith. Do you get that? It's just too important miss this is not just an intellectual exercise where we get to feel good about ourselves we want to warn you that you need to look at your life in the light of Cain in the light of what happened with Abel in the life of Korah we want you to look at your life and review it that we might be the people that God wants us to be amen next week we're going to look a little bit further and how we can build our faith. Some really practical, uplifting exercises how we build our faith. We're looking forward to being within that. I want to close our time in prayer and ask our team to come and lead us in the final 17 songs that we've got today. <laughs> let's pray. I might ask you to stand if you're able to. Would you mind standing with me please? And let's remain standing as we worship in song. Father, we come before you collectively as a church family into your presence again and thank you for paving the way. Thank you for paying such a an inexplicable and just enormous cost so that we could be in your presence. And Father, we are cut to the heart when we look at the lives of these men in verse 11. We, we shudder to think that we could be murderous towards one another. We shudder to think that we could Lord use the gifts that you've given us that we might profit our own fleshly and filthy desires we shudder Lord at the idea that we could be serving ourselves more than we serve you but we do it often without thought so we come before you and ask that you would forgive us for our sin we pray that you would forgive us for the contempt that we have shown towards you and those that you have placed over us We pray that you would help us to not use our Christianity as a cover for our sinful behaviour. We pray, Lord, that you would work powerfully in our lives as we join with you to build our faith. As we spend time in your word, as we love one another the way that you love us, we ask you would continue to strengthen us and we pray this in the lovely name of your Son. Amen.